Before we start, I just wanted to give you guys a trigger warning. This episode includes audio references and discussions in the topic of gender-based sexual violence. Hello, I'm Yash. And I'm Rashil. Welcome to the Voices of Western podcast. Voices of Western is a student-run podcast where we delve into everyday stories of students, staff, faculty on campus, and members of the London community. From personal stories to current events and nonprofits, we cover a broad range of topics to bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Today, we are kindly joined by Allison, who is the Public Education Coordinator at ANOVA, and we will be talking about nonprofits and how ANOVA works to aid and provide support for gender based violence survivors and the members of the London community. Yeah, so here's a little bit about ANOVA before we start. So ANOVA provides safe places, shelter, support, counseling, and resources for abused women their children, and all other oppressed individuals that are just trying to find a new start. So they work to create change by eliminating patriarchal patterns that result in gender-based sexual violence and inequality. So we'll get right into it. How are you doing, Allison? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good as well. <laughs> I'm good too. Um, we'll start off with some introductory, um, introductory questions. So um, to start off, can you tell us a bit about what um, exactly NOVA does and what your role as organization is? Yeah, for sure. So um, ANOVA, really our goal as an organization is to end gender-based violence, which seems like uh, a big dream, but it's, it's really important to us. You know, we know that 50% um, of Canadian women will experience violence at some point in their lifetime. It's not just, you know, sexual assault, there's physical assault, there's you know, harassment, discrimination, um, and it happens, you know, in our homes, it happens in our workplaces. Um, it's sort of all around us. And um, in order to really kind of turn the page, we need to think about, um, you know, those violent structures that really support, um, that really support uh, maintaining systems of oppression. And so through, you know, trauma-informed gender-based lens, um, we're working on ending those, those systems and cycles of violence, um, breaking down those structural inequities um, and, and being on the front lines of response and care for survivors so that eventually we can have uh, a world without violence. Yeah, that sounds like really good work. Um, and I think that there are also like a lot of really amazing jobs maybe that people don't know um, exist, especially in the nonprofit industry. So can you expand a bit about um, your job and tell us what your day-to-day -day life is like? Yeah, for sure. So I'm the public education coordinator, uh, which was definitely a job I did not know existed um, until I started volunteering at ANOVA. Um, and so what I do is um, I do workshops and trainings on topics sort of broadly related to gender-based violence. So I do a lot of work, of course, about consent and healthy relationships, but then I also provide trainings on topics like uh, trauma-informed practice, on bystander intervention, on, um, you know, allyship with the LGBTQ plus community. I identify as queer myself. Um, and so all sort of topics that are sort of tangentially related to gender-based violence um, are things that, that I talk about and I train about. I also uh, run psychoeducational groups. So those are groups that they're not, um, they're not counseling, although we talk about a lot of uh, sort of 
things related to mental health and wellness, um, but they're really aimed at education of the participants in ways that they can really take back and apply to their lives. So I work with, um, there's survivors groups that we run. Um, there are a few youth groups that we run as well as um, our man-made program, which is run at um, both Western and Fanshawe. That's aimed at um, young male student leaders as well as perpetrators and getting them to kind of rethink about masculinity and consent and, and dating and relationships. And, you know, we talk about porn and we talk about accountability and, and all sorts of, you know, really valuable things that guys often don't have the space to talk about. And then sort of the third prong of my job, I guess, is uh, social media. And so I do a lot of our social media content, um, both in terms of like educating about sort of general topics, um, you know, posts about, trauma posts about you know sexual assault awareness month which is in may or women abuse prevention month which is coming up in november um but then also posts you know about our services and kind of getting the word out about um what we do in the community and, and the kinds of supports that we can offer a lot of people think that we are just a shelter and I mean, we are a very large shelter. We're the largest high security shelter in Ontario, but we have a number of all encompassing supports um, for folks in the community. And we really try to meet people where they're at. So even if they're not in a place where they need or want shelter, there are still a number of ways that, that we can support them. Um, and so really making sure people know about that as well. That was really cool. Um, I heard you talk a lot about education and providing support through the educational lens. And so um, I was curious. So over the years, there has been a shift in language uh, referring to violence in the home from domestic violence to gender-based violence. And we were wondering if uh, you could explain the significance of that shift and why that may have actually taken place. Yeah, for sure. So gender-based violence is kind of a, a broader umbrella term that encompasses um, domestic or interpersonal violence, as well as sexual violence, sort of sexual assault, as well as um, violence against LGBTQ folks. Um, that So it's the, the sort of general definition of gender-based violence is violence that is targeted uh, at people um, because of their gender identity or sexuality um, that disproportionately impacts certain uh, gender identities um, or that uses sexuality uh, as a weapon um, to commit violence. So sort of that, that multi-pronged approach. So it's a, a very broad umbrella term. Um, and the reason we mo we're moving more towards that kind of language instead of um, and it's not really instead of, because we still do talk about domestic violence, we still talk about sexual violence, um, but it's just a more accurate sort of all encompassing term to think about the many, many different ways that um, those forms of violence can be enacted on people um, sort of beyond the home and beyond relationships um, because you know, gender-based violence does take place in the home, but it also takes place you know, at work, uh, at hospitals, in our legal systems, um, in all areas of community. And so I think sometimes when we think about domestic violence, it's, it's easy to sort of think of like that's something that happens in private. Um, 
and and its gender-based violence does not just happen in private it happens very much in the public sphere as well I think that's very important. I think um, with a lot of survivors, it, it allows them to feel included and know that, that help is available and that they're part of a group that, that is able to seek help um, in that all-encompassing definition. Um, additionally, um, I was scrolling the ANOVA website and I saw the hide screen and cover your tracks buttons. Um, did you want to go through the thought process of, of yourself or ANOVA in actually implementing those buttons on the website? Yeah, so those are really common buttons to find on uh, websites that are aimed at survivors of um, sort of sexual and domestic violence, um, because we recognize that like oftentimes the perpetrators of that violence are very close to us or potentially in our homes. And so if you're sort of checking our website um, and your abuser walks into the room, we for safety, we um, need you to know that like you can quickly get out of that screen so that they don't sort of see that and become suspicious. Um, and so safety is always one of one of our big concerns um, because we know that um, the the time period when people are, are thinking about leaving an abusive relationship to sort of, you know, a year or more after they've left, that period of time is the most dangerous time for a survivor. Um, and so we, we never want to risk putting people uh, in more danger than they're already in if they're thinking about leaving an abusive relationship. So a follow-up question um, to the safety that you were talking about. Um, so ANOVA actually takes specific measures to protect the safety of its employees and workers. And so I was on the call with uh, one of the agents and uh, she wasn't able to uh, tell me her name, which is completely understandable. I just wanted to know um, what ANOVA is actually doing in addition to that to specifically protect, um, let's say survivors or its employees um, uh, working there. Yeah, so I mean, safety, of course, is a paramount concern of ours, not just for our clients, but also for our staff. Um, and so, you know, at the shelter sites, um, because we do advertise our, our shelter locations, like we have our name right there on the front lawn, some shelters don't do that. They're very um, secretive around what their address is to sort of increase safety so that the perpetrators can't come looking. But we sort of balance that with we want people to know that we're here, to know that we're available. Um, so we, we have made the decision for a long time now to have sort of that name on the front lawn. But the trade-off is that abusers know where to find us. And so we have a number of security measures. Um, you know, we have, we have cameras, we have close contacts with the police department. Um, we have multiple sort of secure entrances where you, you know, go through one door before being able to go through another. Um, and you know, a few more systems that I won't get super into, um, but that's to protect not only survivors, but also of course our staff in case abusers show up uh, on the property. Um, but then we also have a lot of policies just in terms of um, protecting people, um, you know, and their, their safety. Um, we've, you know, we've had instances where uh, people and not just abusers, I mean, sometimes survivors as well, um, can take out their anger on us as an organization um, because of, you know, needs not being met and trauma is a complicated thing. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of layers to, to why safety is so paramount. Um, 
And so we we do, of course, always take that seriously. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so some of our staff um, choose not to share sort of where they work on social media, um, choose not to have their their pictures associated with it. Um, I, the people on the education team, of course, are in a bit of a different circumstance. We're very much out in the community and <laughs> it's very obvious where we work. Um, so, so that's kind of a, a bit of a difference between myself and, and some of my colleagues who are uh, working internally. Um, and so it's, it's just always a balance of, of safety with, you know, what other needs need to be met. Um, so it is sort of always a balancing act in that sense. Speaking of needs, I noticed that there's an imbalance in healthcare, which prioritizes men's health. Are there any imbalances that you'd like to address? So I think a big one um, that we notice is that like a significant portion of the population that we deal with um, aren't connected to a GP, like they don't have a family doctor, um, which is a big problem, right? For, for lots of reasons. Um, we also know that, that GPs or family doctors are often sort of the first person that gets told about domestic violence. Um, and it's, you know, it's easy to understand why. There's typically someone who you have like a trusting relationship with. Um, it's perhaps a little bit easier um, if you're in an abusive situation to go to the doctors by yourself. Um, not always, but, but sometimes. Um, and so GPs can often be on the front lines in terms of disclosures of, of domestic or sexual violence. Um, and so when so much of the population doesn't have access to that relationship, not only is it detrimental for their health in general, um, but it, it can also mean that they, they have that much less support in terms of finding ways out of those kinds of relationships. Um, and then, I mean, of course, we can think about the, the social determinants of health sort of more generally. So even though gender-based violence impacts, you know, can impact anyone across sort of socioeconomic or spectrums, um, we do see that folks who are, um, you know, dealing with poverty, dealing with homelessness, um, lack the supports that they need uh, in general. And then when we add gender-based violence on top of that, um, it can become sort of more difficult to sort of work your way out of that. And then of course, we also know that even though we have universal health care sort of in name, um, our healthcare isn't actually universal. So mental healthcare is, is not covered um, for the most part uh, by, um, by OHIP. Um, and so other than, you know, getting in to see a psychiatrist, which there are huge wait lines and psychiatrists deal in medications and that's not always what people need, um, you know, access to affordable and free counseling, ideally, um, is is not always something that's available to folks. And so that's why it's so important for us that um, not only do we try to be accessible sort of in general, um, but that all of our services are completely free of charge um, because we don't want cost to be sort of one more barrier uh, that stops people from being able to seek the support that they need. Yeah, and um, obviously I think Inova does a great job of helping um, like people in these situations. Um, but for people like, um, um, for like friends and families, is there something that we can do to create a safe space for people who are willing to come to us with this information? Um, and is there like something, is there a right thing to say um, to someone who's going through it? 
through it because Yash and I were talking about how we're both a bit too optimistic sometimes and that translates to toxic positivity. Um, so how should we help um, people in those situations and what should we say? That's such a good question. And it's one that, you know, that I hear a lot. Um, and so I think really just honoring the relationship that they have with you um, and recognizing that like you're a person talking to another person. Um, and so, you know, things you can say, thank you for telling me. Um, that sounds really scary. That sounds really hard. Um, I believe you. How can I help you? What can I do to support you? What do you need from me? Those are sort of the, the main things that, that I would say are really important if someone discloses uh, violence to you, um, is sort of honoring how difficult it is that they've just said that, um, reinforcing that you do believe them, um, because that's one of the biggest fears of folks coming forward is that they won't be believed, and then putting the power kind of in their hands for how how can you move forward, right? Instead of jumping in and assuming what they need from you and why they've told you this, um, just sort of checking in and, and making sure that you're on the same page in terms of what they want, because, um, you know, they might just want to listen. They might just want to tell someone because they've, you know, been keeping it in for so long um, and they don't actually need anything else from you. They just, they need you to listen and then not freak out about it. Um, always wanting to make sure that you're centering their emotional needs. So making sure that your reaction isn't, um, so I, I think about, you don't wanna minimize, but you also don't wanna maximize. Um, you don't want to come across as so angry or so shocked or so horrified at what they've told you that they're then in a position of having to emotionally take care of you. Um, where they're sort of having to say like, it's okay, like it's really, it's not that bad. Um, like that's not a great position to be in. Um, and so trying to, to strike that chord of middle ground um, where you're, you know, appropriately upset on their behalf, um, but not, not having your emotions so like come out so much that, that they then have to take care of you. So if you're sort of someone discloses to you, you're finding yourself having an emotional reaction, try to find someone else to, to take care of those emotions for you. And, you know, you don't have to name names or anything, um, but you can take that to someone else to take care of so that you can focus on sort of emotionally being with and taking care of them in whatever ways uh, feel right for them. So lots of people don't want to go to the police. Um, People might not be ready for, for counseling or for therapy. Um, and so recognizing that it's their journey to take. Um, there are no timelines. There's no sort of right and wrong way of, of them figuring out what comes next. Um, you know, it's, it's all on their timeline. And um, violence is something that's so disempowering that in the aftermath of violence, we really want to make sure that as much as possible, we're putting them in the driver's seat to decide what feels right for them and what happens next. And trusting that, that they'll make the right decisions for their own life, um, even when they, those might be very different from the decisions that we feel like we might make in a similar situation. So it's really just about honoring the relationship um, and, and doing what they say they need you to do rather than what you feel like you might want to do.
Yeah, I think that's um, really good advice for us to listen to. Um, and hopefully uh, we never have to use it, but in case we do, it's, it's good to have. Um, and we also want to talk a bit more about um, like government and nonprofit work. Um, so are there any like pressing political or legislative issues that you want people to be made aware of? Oh my goodness. I mean, there are so many. <laughs> um, so I, I always feel like this is kind of an annoying answer. Um, but like funding for our services, we're so incredibly underfunded. Um, even though our services were deemed essential um, in the pandemic, so the government recognized that like we're needed enough that we're essential during a pandemic, um, but not so essential that they'll you know give us sustainable funding that will actually meet the needs of of the community. So, you know, twenty to thirty percent of of our budget line and not just ours, but like sexual assault and shelters across the province, um, 20 to 30% of our budget comes from fundraised money, which is not sustainable. You know, it's very dependent on um, economics and how the economy is doing and how people are doing and, and takes a lot of time and energy to, to do the fundraising. Um, and if you compare that to the, the healthcare sector where you know, less than 2% of the healthcare center's budget is dependent on fundraised dollars because the government just gives them, I mean, we can say not enough funding, of course, um, but sustainable funding, dependable funding, um, whereas we don't have that um, for gender-based violence and we absolutely should. Another huge issue is access to safe and affordable housing. Um, the lack of, of safe units, um, not just in London, this is, this is a wider issue, but certainly in London, um, creates an enormous backlog where people are having to stay in shelter longer. Um, they're, you know, potentially going back to abusers because they just don't have anywhere else to live. Um, so much so that um, we and, you know, the city and a few other organizations have come together and hired um, some workers who just full-time work on helping people find safe and affordable housing. Um, because folks living in um, shelters, sort of women's shelters, um, which is not a, a great term, but, um, you know, politically we, we sort of roll with it sometimes. Um, they're not considered homeless by sort of a lot of definitions that are used to study homelessness, even though they don't have a home to go to because they've left it because of violence. Um, and so that means that that lens of like gender-based violence and shelter needs are often left out of um, homelessness planning and research. Um, so that's a huge issue as well. Um, and then, I guess sort of policy-wise, there's a new bill that's that's working its way through Parliament that's aimed at training judges um, so that they have more knowledge around sort of trauma-informed sexual assault uh, reactions. And so that's that's an amazing policy that we absolutely support that is long overdue. Um, the way that sexual assaults are handled in the legal system is uh, can be problematic, I guess I would say gently. Um, and so that kind of change we hope will make a tangible difference in the lives of survivors in terms of 
giving them options um, and feeling like the criminal justice system is one of those options, whereas right now so many survivors feel like it's not an option for them. So those are a few of the sort of policy things that that are really big on our minds. Yeah, these are all, all very important issues, I think, um, should be educated upon uh, Canadian citizens and, and actually citizens around the world. Um, these issues are, are very prominent in, in today's. Um, moving on to a more uh, personal note, um, from your time at ANOVA uh, or your time working at nonprofits and uh, helping survivors, what does nonprofit work mean to you? Ooh, um, so I think that for me, nonprofit work really centers the cause um, and whatever that social cause is. Um, and really it enables us to make decisions that benefit the cause rather than making decisions that sort of benefit the bottom line. So when you compare sort of not profit to for profit, and very, it's very popular, especially right now, for for-profits to have sort of social enterprises on the side um, and for businesses to sort of take on that, that uh, additional cause. Um, but when it sort of comes down to it, if it comes down to the cause and their bottom line and their profit, they're going to choose profit because that's the nature of a for-profit is that they have to make profit. Um, and so I think the really incredible thing about nonprofits is that, I, I mean, we're still accountable. We're accountable to our board, to our government, to our community, um, but we're not accountable to capitalism, I guess, in the same sort of sense um, that we, we have um, more leeway in terms of making meaningful change in community, even when that change um, will not benefit anyone financially. Um, and, you know, I mean, some social causes are just a sunk cost, like they're just never going to turn a profit. You're never going to turn a profit offering counseling for survivors unless you're charging them. Um, but then that's not really getting at the root of the issue, right? Um, but survivors still need counseling. And so nonprofit work really, um, really gives the opportunity to to center the, the humanity, I guess, of it, um, rather than centering, um, you know, capitalist pursuits of, of wealth. Um, yeah, so a lot of what we talked about today was, um, uh, I think all hones in on the topic of radical empathy, um, actually being able to understand and feel uh, a lot of what people are, are talking to us about. This was very, this was in relation to um, also providing safe spaces or talking to people in our personal lives with the issues that they may be or someone may be facing. Um, so I was wondering how uh, working at a nonprofit, you, um, you mentioned that you do put in a lot of hours and, um, and you're happy to do so. So how does that, um, how does that impact your, your personal life? Um, uh, like how does it impact the decisions you make in life or, or the person you are today? Um, so I had a baby at the end of 2018, um, and that has absolutely changed my relationship to work. Um, and so prior to having um, my kid, um, I was 
I, I mean, would frequently work sort of overtime and flex my hours. And I, I have a lot of freedom with my schedule. Um, so I, I sort of get paid for uh, a certain number of hours um, per week. But, you know, if I work more than that or less than that, then it's flexible. Then, you know, I just take a day off or sort of make up a day or, or whatever. So I have tons of flexibility in that sense. Um, but I mean, I would regularly, um, prior to becoming a mother, <laughs> be carrying a lot of uh, loo time um, that I knew I would take eventually, you know, a long vacation or whatever. Um, but I was just kind of constantly carrying that. Um, and since coming back from maternity leave, I came back just over a year ago. Um, and my work-life balance has definitely shifted um, to where I try pretty hard to just stick to the number of hours that I'm paid. Some weeks, I mean, just the nature of the business is sometimes we get a lot more bookings um, than others. And so I know that during busy times, I might work a little bit more and that there will be slow times where I can work less. Um, but for the most part, um, I've, I've worked really hard to um, to just sort of work the hours that I work so that I can, you know, come home and, and take the time to spend with my little kiddo. Um, that has been very much challenged by the pandemic. Um, there was something, and I, I feel like I'm not alone in this for people who work with really heavy topics in particular, that there is kind of a therapeutic aspect of the commute um, and of the drive. I mean, I live downtown and I work, you know, in the Goodwill building pre-COVID. So my commute was like five, 10 minutes. Um, but it was a very therapeutic time where I could sort of physically leave behind the work at work and transition to sort of mom and partner mode. And now that I'm working from home, that is very much gone. <laughs> um, and I think that's been a really huge struggle in terms of, you know, literally sometimes in the evenings, I'm giving a presentation in, you know, our bedroom and my toddler is in the living room. And then when I'm done, I just come out of the bedroom and all of a sudden I'm a mom, even though I just spent the last, you know, two hours talking about sexual assault. Um, and so that is very jarring. Um, and so I think a lot of us are probably still working out how to balance that mentally um, in COVID times. But yeah, I think pre-COVID, post-baby, um, I was doing a lot better with the sort of work-life balance um, just because it, you know, it, it gave me just very much something to prioritize outside of ending violence. Um, and so I think a lot of young people when they don't have um, kids and when they don't have, you know, my family doesn't live in town. And so I had my partner who's wonderful, but was also a volunteer. Um, and so, you know, it was just very much sort of what we did and how we spent our time. Um, and so a kid really did change that for me um, in the sense of reprioritizing what's important. Um, and COVID is teaching me all kinds of new lessons in, in how to do that. So I think it's probably an ongoing journey uh, that I will, that I will be taking until I retire. That's what I suspect.
Um, well, congratulations on your newborn. That's really exciting. Um, and I also really relate to what you're talking about when you're talking about um, commuting. I actually used to commute um, to school. And it's just like a seven minute bus ride, but I used to like meditate on the way there and it used to be really helpful. And yeah. now like there's like a, a, a little bit of a like void in my life because um, I'm just so used to commuting. Um, and I also think the pandemic has made um, life difficult for everyone um, and just has made things harder for um, a lot of organizations too. Um, so you talked a bit about your own personal experience, but is there, um, but how has COVID affected the organization itself and like the process? Yeah, so there have been huge impacts and we actually partnered with um, an organization, um, Ending, Violence, uh, Ending Violence Canada, um, around what exactly the impact was, the pandemic, on workers in the gender-based violence sector. Um, and so they found that um, workers are, I mean, much more overworked. Um, so that's, I mean, not surprising. Um, that the cases that people are dealing with, so I, I don't work one-on-one -on -one with clients. Um, I, I do run some groups, but I, I don't have like a one-on-one -on -one caseload. Um, but for the folks who do the cases that they're seeing, um, the violence is much more severe. Um, and so the stress of living in a pandemic and being stuck at home with an abuser is causing more incidents of um, sort of more severe violence. Um, and then it's also a huge stress for funding. Um, so our, you know, we have a yearly gala that we do, our big fundraising, and that typically pays for, a, you know, a significant portion of our sexual assault counseling. We do that every year in May and we weren't able to do that this year. So um, we're just sort of completely missing that, right? And so the needs have continued to grow, um, but the funding hasn't sort of kept up with that. And then on top of that, workers are just so burnt out. You know, it, it was always a, a high emotion job. And when you add to that, um, the sort of healthcare risks, you know, our shelters never closed. Um, our, you know, workers were going through at the peak of the pandemic and now we're on wave two and we're still going in. Um, and so those kinds of stresses, you know, take a toll. We talk a lot about healthcare workers who are experiencing that, but, you know, other frontline workers and shelter workers are, are absolutely experiencing that as well. And then we've also had to just on our feet, you know, and everyone did create a pandemic plan, a pandemic, you know, we have a committee um, that meets, they were meeting every day for months. Um, now they meet a couple of times a week. Um, we have, you know, levels, um, depending on sort of what's going on, we'll be at certain levels, you know, certain things get shut down or get moved to home or whatever things get adjusted. Um, so, so that's constantly happening, constantly being evaluated. Um, and so it's, it's just a lot more work and no more people, um, and, you know, more stress and less time. Um, and so the pandemic has been, been a huge impact on us. Um, and it really, it not only amplified the, the sort of inequities that we were already facing as an organization, um, but it really amplified that for the survivors that we work with as well. Yeah, I can, um, I can definitely see how it would be worse for survivors right now, especially because it's difficult to get out of the house and there is less of a reason to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but hopefully ANOVA is um, 
a resource that they, that they can use. Um, but I also have a bit more of a positive question for you. Um, but during your time at NOVA, what has been the most enlightening or insightful experience that you've had? Oh, um, I mean, I've had lots, you know, I think I've had some really incredible group experiences where I've watched people, you know, come in at the beginning of group, these, you know, shy, quiet, don't say much kids. And then by the end of group, they're, you know, they're so outspoken and, and so clear on their values and wanting to create change in the world and, and wanting to create change in their families and in their schools. And, um, and then they actually go out and do it because young people's energy is endless. <laughs> Um, and so that's really amazing. You know, a couple years ago, we, we ran um, a YES conference, so Youth Ending Sexual Violence. Um, and we had 30 um, young people come and spend two days with us um, learning about consent and healthy relationships and, um, you know, empowerment and um, some tools for like engaging in social change and activism. Um, and then they went off and like did their own projects in schools and, you know, had lunch booths and emailed their vice principals and um, ran for social, you know, change on their student councils and just like incredible, incredible things. Um, and so I think that's been, you know, some of my favorite experiences is watching um, creating this space for people to have these conversations and then watching them take what they've learned from that space and just like apply it in the real world and like make actual change in the world. Um, sometimes it feels like I'm not the one who actually makes the change that I just sort of, you know, go and mention to people that change is possible and then they go off and, and do all this incredible, amazing stuff. And so that's always really, really rewarding to watch. I think a lot of times uh, with your role, I, I believe you would be the catalyst um, causing that to be the change, which is very interesting. I, I, I really like that. Um, uh, in addition to that, just a little bit of a follow up. Um, how can how can the London community or how can the listeners of Voices of Western actually get involved on this issue? There are so many ways to get involved with this issue. I mean, at ANOVA, um, we have so many volunteer opportunities. Um, so we're always looking for new volunteers. Um, you know, getting involved at school, there are a lot of initiatives on campus at Western and at Fanshawe around ending gender-based violence. Um, I think so much of it is just having conversations with the people in your life. Um, and I think it's so important to remember that like there are people in your life who might only listen to you like there are so many times where I feel like I could preach until I am blue in the face about consent and like why rape jokes aren't funny and why we should believe survivors. Um, and, you know, the people who are able to listen to me are amazing and why I do what I do, but some people are just never going to be able to hear that from me. And there are so many people out there who like, they might be able to hear it from you, you know, from their child, from their roommate, um, from their mentor. Um, and so I think especially men have such a role to play um, in this. And for a lot of folks doing the work, it's a lot of, you know, women and, and non-binary and trans folks 
um, who are sort of on the receiving end of gender-based violence, who have been really doing a lot of the tough slogging on this. Um, but men have such a role to play as well because there are some men who will only be able to hear it from other men. Um, and, and so, you know, you're able to, to do that, to make that change. And so for folks who are, are sort of wanting to get involved, who see the issue, but don't know what kind of changes they can make, I mean, just starting in your own life. Um, if you see something problematic, you know, feeling empowered to say something about it, having those conversations with, with your friends and family, even though it is exhausting, um, because that's sort of where it starts, right? It starts in our homes, it starts in, um, in those conversations with people we're already in relationship with, um, because they trust you, <laughs> you know, they trust you to, to have honest dialogue with them, um, good faith dialogue. Uh, and sometimes that can be so much more powerful than just, you know, a lecture from someone that they don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, is there anything specific that uh, ANOVA needs or, 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 or anything specific that the London community or, the, or our listeners can do to actually make a, a contribution to ANOVA? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, beyond volunteering and money, which I've already kind of mentioned, um, our donations are open. So we, um, you know, we always need um, a number of donations and on our social media and on our website, we'll always have our sort of most up-to-date needs wanted um, list. And so that will be things that we're sort of most in need of. So often like hygiene supplies, bathroom supplies, um, you know, around the beginning of school, we need school supplies. Um, we're always interested in, you know, taking gently used um, clothing and, and children's toys, you know, Christmas is coming up, holiday season. Um, and so we will have a number of, of children and families in shelter where, um, if not for the incredible generosity of our community, we would not be able to make their festive season possible. Um, so all of those things are, are always so, so needed and appreciated. That's very important stuff. Um, just as a wrap up, um, what do you want the general public to know about Inova? Or do you have any social media you'd like to plug or um, any events coming up or any final thoughts? Yeah, so our social media, we're on um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And it's the same on each of those. So it's at Anova Future, A-N-O-V-A Future. Um, and so if you give up, uh, give us a follow, and that would be incredible. You can stay up to date about what's going on with our agency, uh, as well as receive some delightful education from me. Um, and then we don't have any events coming up because of COVID, uh, but holiday season is right around the corner. And so we will be starting, uh, you know, fundraising and donations campaigns to make sure that, that the families that are staying with us can have, you know, a good holiday season, all things considered. Um, so, so that's right around the corner as well. Thank you, Allison, for coming on our show. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for listening to our second episode. We're your co-hosts, Rashil and Yash. Don't forget to follow us on our Facebook page at Humans of Western and our Instagram page at humans underscore Western.